Hey everybody, this is your host Ian. If you are new to the podcast, please check out our YouTube page. It has some great videos that go along with our content here. And hit that subscribe button. That actually really does help us. Additionally, if you want to see other cool content, either related or directly related to the podcast, you can check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Give a follow. Now, as far as our guests for today, we have two people who are trying to connect ocean-going folks like us with hard science using a platform they call Ocean Sanctuaries. Please let them take you on a journey fueled by shark encounters, curiosity, and untapped opportunities for plain folk like us. Good to go? Welcome to Ocean Folk Podcast, the podcast where we speak to people who the ocean speaks to. We explore the stories of those who explore the ocean. All right. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Barbara Lloyd and Mike Bear from Ocean Sanctuaries. So, you guys are based out of San Diego, which is one of my favorite places to visit and uh, one of the most unique and accessible underwater environments here in California. I think I'd like to start off before we go into like ocean, ocean sanctuaries as an institution and just talk a little bit about why you guys were inspired to start a nonprofit in this part of the United States and what what got you uh, motivated to do so? Well, as you said, the the underwater environment is a really uh, unique place in terms of what most of us experience in our life, right? You know, even um, even what we see on TV or what we might see if we go to a tropical area, the waters um, in the what's called the Eastern Pacific, which is on the Western United States, the Western uh, the coastline of the Western United States, um, are very uh, dark and green, and that's actually because those waters have a lot of nutrients in it. So if you think of the ocean and all the critters in it, right? In order to survive, they've got to eat, right? So they're going to go where the most food is. And um, in addition to that factor of the, the you know, microorganisms in the water, the California coastline, actually the whole Western uh, United States or the Western, uh, the continent has what's called rocky reef uh, right along shore. And that rocky reef allows things like kelp to grow. And kelp is basically an underwater forest. It's a place that has biodiversity from the bottom all the way to the top. And so lots of different types of critters can, can exist in that. And that includes food. So we love diving because of that. And um, you know, we would hear these stories of different types of sharks. Um, we have a lot of um, shallow sharks that are really uh, timid uh, like leopard sharks and horn sharks, and they're not nothing to to fear. And so, you know, it's kind of like, oh, okay, I can dive with those, but you always worry about the sharks that that are bigger and come in. And when I first started diving here, all I ever heard about was this one shark called the tope. 
I won't, I won't use the, well, actually it used to be called soup fin. And okay. Yeah. Could, so yeah, that is the most confusing thing. I always talk to people about this. I'm like a taupe, a soup fin, a dogfish. I can't tell the difference. Yeah. And it, you do have to really understand like knowing like what their tail shape is, where their fins are, uh, the, the, the fins on the top, uh, the pectoral fins, the, the fins at the back, the anal fins, all those things where they're located. Right. Um, so, and the taupe, it, it's like, you don't get the opportunity to see it very often because it moves super, super fast. Right. And it does not mm. let people. But, it, but it's a big shark. So we used to hear these stories of them. And Mike and our dive buddies, we're, we've been out diving for a while. And we're, you know, everybody's got underwater, not high, great equipment at this point, but, you know, decent equipment. But you can never get pictures of these. And then um, Mike can maybe go back over the history or maybe I can go look up the timeline, which I was going to do but forgot. But we started seeing a different type of shark. And... Uh, we're like, okay, so what is this? So it's got a blunt nose. So then you do research and there's only two sharks that have blunt noses, a seven gill and a six gill. And both of them are deep water sharks. So finally we were out diving one day. Well, poor Mike wasn't, he was on the boat and I was underwater with uh, a professional underwater photographer. Um, I semi professional, I had a really big, really high quality video camera system. And we get images of this shark. Uh, I'll tell you the story later. It's a very, very awesome story. But we get images of the shark and then like we're, we're asking around and we go and ask the scientists, well, what kind of shark is this? And they're like, well, it, it can't be a seven gill because they don't come in this shallow. And it's like, I'm sorry, I can count to seven. You know, I learned to count to seven <laughs> when I was very, very young. And this did the video, yeah. Not only is the video very clear, but of course the professional images were absolutely clear. So this was the first time that we had really, really high quality, solid proof. So what, um, and not what only- is this about? Like, is this like- Was it 2012, Mike? Um, let's see, I'm, I'm not sure the date of that dive where I was on the boat and you were seeing the shark, um, but I'm thinking uh, around, uh, does 2009 sound about right? Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. It was, yes, he's he's exactly right. It was 2009. Okay. So before <laughs> this, there wasn't really any irrefutable uh, evidence that there had been a seven gill in the San Diego area, or it was just kind of like everybody suggested it or talked about it, but you guys wanted to get some sort of evidence that the shark was there. Yeah, well, we were we had been going out trying to to definitely get that. We had uh, prior to that, we had um, going back, I think, a year, year and a half. We had records from other people mm, um, okay. who had seen them and had vi had uh, images, but they weren't they weren't really super high quality and guaranteed because not only do you need to see the nose and the gills and the freckling pattern, but you have to see where those fins are. Remember, we talked about how the difference between uh, a taupe and um, a thresher shark and a seven gill. You really have to see where those fins are and the shape and the length of that tail. So we had all of that on one shark from multiple angles, from multiple photographers. So it's like, no question, you, you cannot refute this. And so finally we did have somebody who came back and said, 
yeah, that is. It definitely is a seven gill. And we're like, yeah, we know. Um, so then we <laughs> welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so so that obvious. that launched uh, and Mike can share all about his seven gill sharding uh, seven gill shark sightings.org project. A very, very big project. Um, so that was the thing that really got Mike and I going and saying, look, we we need to do something about this. Now the longer version of the story, which I'll try to give a short about how we started, was I was also sitting on a nonprofit for uh, San Diego Undersea Film Ex Exhibition, which is we have an annual uh, international exhibition, um, underwater film exhibition here in San Diego. And I had a project and I was supposed to contact a lawyer about something. And then by the time that I finally got that arranged, uh, we didn't need to do that anymore. But but Mike and I had seen the shark. And so I said, ha, I'm going to use this and have this conversation. And so instead of starting Ocean Sanctuaries just for the sharks, that 90-minute conversation ended up building the organization that we have today. Uh, but it was really started from the one shark. And I, I gave you that link. It's on uh, Vimeo. Okay. And it's uh, who patrols these waters. And that is the shark that really started it all. And um. I was watching some uh, sci-fi stuff at the time, and um, I ended up nicknaming her Lady Genevieve. Uh, she is a full-grown adult. Uh, we did not see any scars on her yet for mating, which was interesting. Mm. They said they said she had to be between eight and eleven feet closer to the eleven-foot length. So that's a big shark. It is, and this shark came within. Three, yeah, the, like the third time she, she circled us. I can tell you a lot more about that later if you want, about like some of this behavior we learned uh, through this whole process. But we came, went back and looked at the photos and that shark must have circled us at least five times. Um, and so at least two of those we didn't know about and three times she approached us. And each See, time she got closer. Thing, that's the thing that people hear like a shark circling and they're always thinking, oh, they're moving in for predation, right? Like they're coming in closer and closer. Sharks are actually just curious sometimes and they just want to check you out and they don't yeah. know what's going on. So that's very cool. Now, Mike, what did Barbara just come to you and say, hey, you want to be part of a nonprofit or like how how did you get involved? Because I know you're a, a power player in this as well. Well, Barbara's right that her initial encounter with the Seven Gill was uh, seminal in the formation of our nonprofit. And around that time, I also had my own encounter with a seven gill coincidentally. Uh, it was off of uh, wind and sea. And my buddy and I were swimming about six feet apart. And this very large seven gill just swam cool as you please right between us. And to say we were startled is the understatement of the day. <laughs> and uh, we didn't get very good documentation of him, but that brought seven gills into my awareness. And uh, as Barbara said, so um, sort of long story short, we had been diving in San Diego since around 2002, I mean, together as dive buddies. And roughly between 2002, 2008, 2009, we don't recall any divers reporting encounters with seven gills. Now, as we all know, the fact that encounters are not reported does not mean they were not there. But as far as the local divers are concerned, if nobody's seeing them, then in effect, they're not there. So once I had my encounter and Barbara had her encounter, 
What my encounter led me to do is I thought, well, are we the only ones seeing these sharks? And I thought, well, there's only one way to find out. And maybe I could do an informal poll out there in the diving community to see who else is seeing these sharks. There is always that moment where you're like, maybe I'm special. Maybe I'm the only, I am the shark whisperer. They all just come to me because I'm in tune with nature. <laughs> right. Right? right, exactly right. Yeah, you gotta be, you gotta be careful about delusions like that, right? The shark likes me, right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It totally is my friend. Yeah, there are people that labor under such <laughs> delusions. Anyway, so I thought, well, maybe I'll put out an informal poll in the diving community um, to see who else is seeing these sharks. So this, the Seven Gill Shark Project actually had its humble origins as an Excel spreadsheet. And the problem with that data collection method is there, were no, there was no photography involved and it was based on local divers' ability to identify a seven-gill shark, which, as you've seen from what Barbara just said, runs into a lot of difficulties because uh, not everyone knows a seven-gill shark when they see one. So the initial data collection certainly could never be used scientifically, but it was the genesis of the project. Later on, it became a website. And then um, we can go into this a little bit more if you like. Uh, what happened around 2013, uh, 2014 is we ran into a software developer named Jason Holmberg, who developed WildBook, which ended up being our final database. So is that what you guys use at Ocean Sanctuaries as like your platform for recording data as citizen scientists? We use multiple platforms for multiple reasons. I guess this is a good time to break into what Ocean Sanctuaries is now that we know you guys started out with these seven gills, right? And what is the what is the vision for Ocean Sanctuaries now? Right. So our vision is to basically give people like you don't have to be a scientist, right? You can just be an and you know one of the regular people in the population, giving them opportunities to do citizen science. So what is citizen science? It's regular people going out and doing the things they do every day that they love doing and then contributing and recording either via, we use uh, photographs, um, so verifiable uh, data and recording that data so that researchers, organizations uh, can use that information. So with photographs, this is something that's an objective piece of data that um, you can contribute as just an individual person and, and a more professional person could actually look it up and like make some sort of determination about its authenticity or accuracy or whatever it Correct. is. Correct. So which is something that's amazing with new digital cameras these days people have access to that and can participate like that. Correct. Uh so we basically have three platforms and I'll describe each one and uh you know generally how they how they work. So so speaking of the Seven Gill Shark one, um Back at the sevengillsightings.org, all we had for showing, you know, where and when these sharks were was to create a Google KMZ file. Um, so then with WildBook, WildBook is a mark, what's called a mark and recapture software without ever using any kind of invasive method. So you mark it and capture it via photographs. And you, I should say, you capture it via photographs. You mark it via this special AI software that when um, the researchers for that species decide where the best place is to find a way to identify an individual, 
then you can use that. So uh, um, originally Wild Me started, uh, I'm sorry, well, Wild Me is the organization. So when Wildbook was originally developed, it was actually developed as a research project, um, I believe out of Australia called the Shepherd Project. And it was up for whale sharks. And why whale sharks? Because whale sharks, they have a place on their body where you can say, hey, this pattern, their star pattern is unique to that shark. So they identified where that spot was the best. And then they went out and they took photographs and used this AI. It's interesting, the AI and the reason that they chose whale sharks is because the AI is a combination of several platforms. And one of those was a NASA star charting software. Okay. And so whale sharks work really well. So they basically did stars. So you're saying the spots, the spots on the whale sharks were basically close enough to stars to be used as identifiers. Yeah. So they, what they do is they create like a, a, a star chart, right? So point here, point here, point here, and then, you know, a, a bunch of them in this range. So you have, you know, maybe a dozen stars in that box. Oh, cool. And then that way, the next time you take a photograph, it might be skewed, but because it's star charting software, it knows how to make that adjustment to flatten it back out and to get the positioning. So it doesn't matter what angle you take the photo at, you still can identify the shark. And so you don't need professional photographers taking it from the same angle all the time. This is where amateurs can come in and you can use that software. And do they link it with like locations so that they can track the movements of the shark? Is that the goal? Yes, it does. Okay. It does. And that's, you know, when we get into the seven gills and the local people, Part of their uh, their uh, caution to submitting data is because they don't want fishermen to know where they are. So uh, yes, you can. And now the software has been expanded to many, many marine species, including giant sea bass, including manta rays, seven gill sharks, because we figured out seven gills have freckling patterns and those freckling patterns are unique. So. Again, the wild book software is basically uh, uh, you capture it with a photograph, you mark the individual, it's like a fingerprint, right? So like my fingerprint is pretty unique. Well, yeah, you can't even see my fingerprint anymore, but I do technically have a, a unique fingerprint, right? And so then the next time somebody comes along and takes a photograph and submits it, then there's a process in the algorithm or in the software to basically go and compare it to prior uh, we call them encounters. So that is a very, very specific software that is designed where you can identify individual entities. Now in citizen science um, and with most species, you can't. So take flowers and plants, right? It's really hard to take a photograph and say that that flower or that plant is exactly the same one that somebody else took a, a photograph of. So there are a lot of species that you can't do that with. However, you can still use photographs and AI to help the individual who took the photograph to identify the species. So iNaturalist is the other big platform that we use for all non-shark species. And we run bioblitzes for uh, typhals. And we also run a whole project for the Yukon Marine Life Survey, which is the big Canadian warship off Mission, uh, Mission Beach. Yeah, so explain 
what that is for people who aren't aware uh, that project, because that is one of my favorite California dive sites. Yeah, sure. So that is one of our other major projects, uh, simply because we had been diving the Yukon since 2003. So just quick background on is a real uh, Canadian warship that was decommissioned from the Canadian Navy to the city of San Diego and then towed out 1.8 miles from Mission Beach and sunk. And it's the size of a football field underwater. And it's, as you know, Ian, if you can do all that in one dive, you're, you're a good diver. <laughs> Most people require a couple dives to do the whole wreck. And so that's been out there since, um, since the year 2000. And uh, Barbara and I were originally involved in another, basically one of the start in um, underwater marine citizen science was uh, we were involved in an early pilot program pioneered by uh, Dr. Ed Parnell out of, uh, out of uh, Scripps Institute, uh, where he trained basically uh, everyday divers on um, how to collect data underwater, transect lines, things like that. And he sent us down and we were one of the earliest teams of uh, science divers who go down on the Yukon to monitor the marine life. Now, a couple caveats there. Number one, because that was so early on after it had been sunk, there wasn't much marine life to document. Yeah. And the early efforts were involved with diver species training. And um, so it, it depended on the diver's ability to identify marine life in order to be accurate. So you can see there's gonna be some problems with that if the divers make an, uh, a mistaken identity, a mistaken uh, identification. Anyway, so starting from that initial project, which he later uh, published, we decided around the year 2015, we thought, well, there's been this gap between the early study and the year 2015. And so let's do a five-year study to monitor what marine life has accumulated on the Yukon since then. And luckily for us, in the intervening time, technologies such as the GoPro and, as Barbara mentioned, other much more high-definition uh, cameras had come onto the market. So that enabled the divers in the second study from 2015 to 2020 to take uh, very accurate high-definition photographs of marine life on the Yukon, and which we then uploaded to iNaturalist. Well, let, let's just so people can get an understanding when they sunk the Yukon and there's no, it took a while for anything to grow on it. How would you describe it now? Cause if you dive the boat, you know, if you were to dive it this week, barring that conditions aren't great this week, but if you were, what would you see? It is a 366 foot boat that has been diverized. You can go uh, through the entire thing if you're certified and using the proper, uh, you know, uh, lines and so forth, or if you have the proper training. But it's an amazing boat to explore. What kind of life would someone see on this boat? Right. Well, it's actually so technically these these objects that we sink underwater are called artificial reefs, as you know. And they are sunk with the idea in mind of attracting marine life. So obviously, if you dove the Yukon in, back in 2001, it was practically just bare metal. Uh, but right now, 
in the intervening years, it has become an entire ecosystem unto itself. So for example, there's kelp, there's kelp growing on the Yukon. I didn't even know kelp could grow on metal until I saw it on the Yukon. You have kelp, kelp forest, you have, um, you have, sp you have sponges, numerous species of brightly colored sponges, orange, orange, yellow, uh, blue colored sponges. Um, and you have um, those white cauliflower like metridians, which can get up to like a foot long and they're all over the wreck. In addition to what, so that kind of, the, the marine life that attaches to the wreck is called sessile. So in addition to the sessile, you have all these verte uh, vertebrates, uh, you know, uh, rockfish, uh, sheephead, um, not so much Garibaldi, but we've even seen on one occasion, we saw a mola mola. Yeah, mola molas, I've seen them there a couple of times. They come into the shallows sometimes. I, you know, one of the things that is the most amazing about diving that wreck, and I always love it, is it is completely covered with Coronactus anemones. Yes. The bright right. pink, purple, reds, and then on top of that, the, the amount of fish that just flow over and in and out is amazing. The blacksmith, which are like this kind of navy blue with a little hint of purple in there. And then you oftentimes see these, um, uh, what are the painted green leans that perfectly blend in until they swim away. And there, and you'll see random crabs crawling over this wreck and you're like, what are these crabs doing here? But it is, a, like you said, an amazing ecosystem. Don't forget the nudibranchs. Well, there's, yes. And that's the other <laughs> thing. Spanish shawls, hermacindas, all kinds of things. Um, there's almost always sea hairs on it as well which are, you know, about a foot long, giant black sea slugs, right? It is an amazing ecosystem and to watch it, I mean, you guys have watched it transform from its beginning, you know, and I, you know, I think it's important to give people an idea of like how cool of a location it is to dive. Um, but you guys wanted to document this is the whole point, right? And this feeds into what you guys are doing now and you're documenting. So let me make sure I know this. You guys are doing sightings of uh, of the seven gill and six gill sharks in just seven gill, just seven gill sharks. Okay, seven gill sharks uh, in um, the greater San Diego area. You guys are doing um, monitoring the life and growth on this artificial reef that's been down there since 2000, um, 2000 2001, somewhere around mm -hmm. there, and then also tide pools. So people can get involved with tide pools and document this. What do you want to use all this uh, data for? Like, what is the what is the overarching goal? Is it to just make it so that we have a running record of like what kind of life is here and see if it's changing or see if things need to be protected or um, the overarching purpose is to just get people involved with uh, their local environment in a way that they can be aware of it. Um, let me start first, and then I, I'll let Mike actually talk about it on the citizen science. So as a as an organization, we we did not want to stay too focused. We wanted to be able to encompass more. So we do also a good part of our organization is about educating people. So we also have online learning, right? And we also have uh, video storytelling, right? What we're doing right here, right? This is a podcast, but we also want to do um, whatever uh, audio visual storytelling to basically inspire people, 
right? To There's a lot of people out there that don't have access to the ocean or those that do are afraid. The whole shark thing scares people to death or stingrays, right? I mean, it could even be just stingrays. I'm afraid to get in the water because I don't want to get stung. I don't want to get hurt. Harm more people every year than sharks. Right. So one of the aspects of our organization is to do things that in, engage others and inspire them. And then I'd love Mike to kind of talk a little bit more um, on the the value of citizen science, if you want, Mike, or I can take it. Sure. So one thing um, I, I did want to mention is, so part of the citizen science model, Ian, is um, sure it involves everyday people going out and collecting data uh, that might be useful for scientists, but we have to make sure that the data is scientifically uh, useful and accurate. So we use something called the PI model, and PI stands for principal investigator. And what that means is in essence, we basically go out and we find a graduate student in marine science, could be masters, PhD, whatever, someone who's trained in the scientific method. And we ask them to help us out. And what we do is we have all our data, uh, what would be the word proofed or verified by a uh, marine scientist, okay? to make sure that we follow proper scientific protocols because there's no point in gathering all this data if it's not scientifically useful. I think everyone would agree. Yeah, quality control. Yeah, and so that's the model of citizen science. Another way of saying it is citizen science, or some people have problems with that word and we can say community science if, if people prefer. Part of the, uh, the model of community science is non-scientists, practicing the scientific method under the mentorship of a scientist. So we try to use that model. And so um, that ensures the quality of our data. And in terms of what we uh, aspire to use it for, well, obviously there are lots of changes going on globally, right? Uh, some of them linked to climate change. Uh, one good example would be in 2014, we had this, uh, it was described as a, a marine heat wave and the water, the surface water temperatures in San Diego climbed to near tropical levels, almost 80 degrees. That's like mind boggling, yep. okay? Because water temperatures rarely get above, I don't know, 70 here. And so it brought in, uh, brought with it an influx of, uh, for instance, uh, hammerhead sharks which yeah. we're lucky to be able to document. By the way, we had photographers in the water during the during 2014, and they were able to document with photographs hammerhead sharks for our other database, which is called FieldScope. And I can go into that a little bit later. If and you. blue sharks. And blue sharks. So, yeah. Yeah. So 2014 is a good example of the kind of global climate changes we're seeing taking place. So what do we do with this evidence? Well, a lot of the evidence we simply make available to scientists should they wish to have it. So for instance, if a scientist were to say, well, was anybody doing any data collection offshore when we were having this marine heat wave? And we're able to say, yes, we were. And I have to say in terms of giving credit where credit's due, um, we've worked closely with the California Academy of Sciences, which um, maintains and develops iNaturalist. Oh, cool. Okay. I didn't know that. And iNaturalist is this global database. It's one of the largest in the world. It's not just marine life. It's also flora fauna from the land. In fact, it's probably mostly flora, flora and fauna from the land. But so 
the by uploading, for instance, the data from the Yukon, it goes into the database of the iNaturalist. I'm sorry, it goes into iNaturalist database, which is then um, looked at by the California Academy of Sciences. And then they can incorporate that into other studies involving uh, changes along the coast due to climate change and things like that. So basically, you guys are um, maybe, and correct me if this is a misinterpretation, you guys are creating an availability of data for scientists to access. Um, even though they haven't requested it yet, but it will be useful because even if it's a baseline for when something else happens. Correct. So, so a perfect example of that is our King Tide projects. And what, so now a lot of people may know that the King Tides are really about, um, really sea level rise and how that impacts at high tide, uh, the coastline and things like that. Well, knowing that um, the king tides have been uh, an area of concern related to sea level rise and, and you know, climate change, right? Why, why is sea level rising? Um, we saw an opportunity with the tide pools to run bio blitzes during the same exact times that these scientists are looking at king the king tides. Now, we had someone recently said, whoa, isn't it dangerous to go out? And it's like, no, you go to tide pools at the lowest of the low tides. So what a lot of people don't realize is about king tides, you know, when they're talking about what's happening to buildings and cliffs and things, they're looking at when the tide is the highest. Well, when you get to the tide pools is when it's lowest. So there are still some places, I mean, there's a lot of tide surge and the further north you go, the more dangerous it is. But so we've been running these bio blitzes um, both to you know just get people out. People like to get out. It's a great time to see the tide pools because you can get into the tide pools more. But also then over time, you, there you know you can look and see what's been happening with the species that are there and the abundance of species and the abundance within a given species. And scientists can later if they start looking back and saying you know we wonder like we're, we're seeing this about the the erosion and stuff. So how is that affecting the tide pools? Well, now we've been collecting the data. We're on our fourth year now. So year five comes up 2022. So we've been collecting this data. Um, so we try to look at it, not what necessarily we might want to like write a research paper on or something like that, but also what value we may be able to give to the planet to people for the future. That's super interesting because people oftentimes think of science as you design an experiment, you go out and perform it. But there's something true to the fact that you do need data sometimes and just data that exists and is ongoing, like long-term um, data collection. And you guys are providing that service for scientists to use and utilize. It's almost like you... Uh, to use a really lame uh, example, like you built a well that if a scientist wants to come over and drink from, they definitely can do so. Yeah, and that is the whole citizen science movement and the community science movement, right? And um, scientists are now starting to see the value of that research. Um, the best example I give um, is that when a scientist goes out and does their research project, right? They're gonna do it from year one to year whatever, 
and they are going to go to a very, very specific spot in the ocean. Well, the ocean, it's everything moves, right? And it moves based on time of year and tides and things like that. The benefit of using citizen science data is that you have a lot more people going out a lot more frequently. It gives you more, a better picture, right? Because it's like there have been, um, so Reef Check California has actually did a paper, I think like five years ago, where they compared hard research data on the same sites that they were, I'm sorry, it was reef, reef.org, I believe, um, that they did a, um, that there was research going on in very specific, specific sites up in the Monterey area. And then we had our uh, annual reef count that we would go out and do. Uh, Mike and I participated in that. So then they, they compared the two data sets and got really, really good results. I mean, they, they use, the, the people that did this paper were hardcore scientists, okay? And looking at whether or not you could use untrained scientists to go out and record uh, biodiversity information, right? And now with the advent of the uh, photographs and the AIs, which iNaturalist uses. So iNaturalist's method to validate the data is it uses AI first or as a supplement actually, um, and then community agreement and um, expert agreement. So, I mean, but come on, like, there is a long history of using uh, undergraduate students to collect your data because it is the boring, monotonous part. I mean, that is not where you need your PhD for, right? Like, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of merit, and it's not super hard to collect data for these uh, community science things. And the fact that all you need to do in these days is take a picture of a place that you want to go anyway or just share a picture that some of us, like I'm a, I like to take pictures all the time when I go diving, share the pictures that you take. I mean, this is a really good thing in a way that you can add to the kind of added value, the value of your activities. Oftentimes, you know, people dive for recreation or they go to the tide pools because it's a beautiful experience. But now that you can also make it part of this thing and contribute and give back, it seems like it's an, it's just a little bit of icing on the cake to the fun stuff that the people who are doing it like to do anyway, which I think is great. And I think, um, you know, like knowing that that's an option and you guys put in a platform out there, it's part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you guys is so that people know that they don't have to, you know, march on Washington to have a positive effect in their community. They can just do, you know, upload their photos or share with their kids the videos or show, show their child, you know, hey, look, you can do this little thing in your tide pool down the way, or you can do this while you're diving, or you can, you know, share this information and you're helping science happen. That's something that wasn't available 20 years ago. Exactly. And, you know, you mentioned it's like people want recognition for what they do. So um, I'll tell you a little land story that really surprised me then where I got like, uh, I still like all of a sudden, see, like all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I'm so proud I did this, right? I'm walking my dogs, okay? And I'm cleaning up, you know what you gotta clean up when you clean up after dogs, right? Boy, do right I. after a rain. And I look and I go, wow, there's a lot of snails. And so I get on my iNaturals on my app, I open the app and I take the photograph and I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, look, 
I'm, I'm reporting garden snails. And a couple of days later, I get back and it's like, that's not a garden snail. That's a, I forget what the pointed, um, pointed snail is. And I'm like, huh? And luckily my camera take really high resolution. So I zoom in and I'm like, oh my God, great. So it turns out it was, it's an invasive species. And someone, and two, I had three people reach out to me related to it. And one ended up writing a paper and using my photographs. It's like, I literally am walking the dog and cleaning up after the dog. And I just contributed to science. And I'm like, right now, my body's like, oh, no, I feel so good. You know, the, the endorphins are running because it's like, I was out just doing something, had some fun with it. And I had made a difference with it. And it's weird. We live in a time where that's available. Right. Right. And Barbara put her finger on it, which is um, that one of the things, one of our goals is simply to make doing science fun again. Because so many people think of science, that's been part of the whole citizen science revolution, is it took science out of the ivory towers and basically democratized it to allow the everyday person to participate and have fun doing it. So I'm a, I'm a little bit of a history buff and um, I, I think back to like the early pioneers of the scientific revolution where they're just kind of going out and exploring curiosity. And you're right, like with the structured requirements of really, really refined and quality level science, some of that curiosity is squashed by formality. I love the idea that now that is coming back. People can explore and just be curious and ask questions and post, and there's going to be more of a mix between the people who have to do the formal parts of it that are very hard and difficult, the people who are writing papers, who are doing research, and the people who just are curious and want to contribute. Like you said, finding an invasive species out for a walk, you didn't know. You didn't, you weren't looking for that. The One of the greatest things in the world about um, going underwater or going to the tide pools is 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 tapping into that human curiosity and finding things and sharing that and then making that available to people who do the formal science, the very difficult and hard and that requires training. I like it. I, I think it's fantastic. Um, I think it's amazing that we're starting to realize that, you know, uh, these sharks like the six gill, um, or I'm sorry, the seven gill, which we would, like you said, when you told people you saw them, they were like, no, we don't have those in shallow water. And now people have regular sightings. And it, and hopefully one day we'll understand exactly why that is. And it's that curiosity, that ability to challenge what we know and explore it. It's fantastic. So how often do you guys get out and you said you do these bio blitzes. These are organized events to go into tide pools. Do you do other organiza organized events with people or um, how, does, how does that work? Sure, um, that's a really good question. So um, we have in the past, uh, especially for the Yukon Marine Life Survey, uh, gone out and you know uh, went to the diving community and encouraged people to go out um, at, you know, during a period of time, whether that be a weekend 
or um, maybe a couple week period. Um, some of that coincides with when the California Academy of Sciences is doing what they call a, a CalCoast snapshot. And um, or, so we've done that. Uh, with the tide pools, those events, um, we really run them more as individuals going out and doing, we have gone and done actual events with uh, a couple of different university student groups. Um, and we did one where we, uh, the public in general, we did at Seaside Beach in near Cardiff, right? Um, mm, yeah. And, but then with COVID, of course, uh, we really haven't been able to put on those events. So we are looking at, you know, getting those uh, going again. Um, and we are looking at partnering with a local dive charter, uh, Water Horse Charters. They have uh, shared, um, uh, expressed an interest, I'm sorry. They've expressed an interest with us from several years back into actually doing um, these bio blitzes for the Yukon. And so right now yeah. we're, they, we're- They're a great organization in the sense that, um, you know, obviously their business is linked very much with the Yukon but they took over manning the moorings for the Yukon. They have supported other people getting to that there. I'm a big fan of them. Yeah. Great dive boat. Yep. Um, and so we're, we're working with uh, those uh, that business and we're actually right now trying to figure out how we're going to do it for this upcoming year. Um, so you guys are going to do bio blitzes for the Yukon to do documentation. That's right. Fantastic. And then give them the tools so that when they have regular, when we're not doing a bio blitz, how to get regular people. So, Hey, you look, you're taking a camera down. Did you know you can, and here's a, you know, here's a leaflet on how you can make those oh. valuable, how you can contribute to science and to general knowledge and, yeah, you know, even, you know, whether potentially whether artificial reefs are a great idea or not um, and things like that. They're so, a great idea. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm not even I'm not even going to pretend like I'm a objective on that one. I am a big fan. Um, and then I do want to make sure that Mike gets to cover a little bit more about field scope, which is for all of our other sharks. So that one is really difficult to run events for, um, except for when what's called the blob, when the hot water comes up here then there might be some of the, the local um, dive boats sometimes convert themselves to uh, shark snorkeling um, offshore. So so you, you guys do something called field scope. That's one of the other, that's the other platform. That's Oh, the other platform. That's the other platform. So you document other sharks other than just the uh, seven gill. Yeah, Mike, you okay. want to share on that? So, well, hold on. Just so people know, like what, how many different species would you say you can see in the greater San Diego area? Because I know every August is one of the most amazing times to be down there because you get to see the leopard sharks in anywhere from like two feet to 10 feet of water and they're everywhere. And it is one of the most amazing experiences you can have. But you're saying there's a multitude of species of sharks that are in San Diego. What what are people looking at or looking right. for? Right. So you put your finger on it, Ian. Uh, every summer, the leopard sharks come into sh very shallow water. Sometimes they they're even seen uh, swimming between the legs of bathers, you know, unbeknownst to them. And so yes. that's one. And just huh? and just so and just so people know, leopard sharks are anywhere from. I mean, I've seen them as small as like less than a foot when they're juveniles just coming out of hatching 
to uh, they get to be like seven or eight feet and they feed primarily only on crustaceans and small things they their teeth are more like a, a grind pad than anything they're super right. harmless beautiful leoparding pattern um, right amazing exactly tracks. so that's one of the more well-known um, events that the public can participate in is the annual uh, leopard shark appearance at la jolla shores in the summer so just to um just to uh, summarize real quickly, so FieldScope, by the way, both our shark platforms, FieldScope and WildBook, are based on what we're calling random encounters, okay? So um, we already covered FieldScope a little bit. The, I'm sorry, we covered WildBook. So FieldScope was, um, it's supported and designed by a, it's actually a publishing, it's a science publishing uh, group called BSCS. And uh, so they've got a National Science Foundation grant that they work from. And so FieldScope is a database and it also requires a photograph to be submitted. So again, it's a similar model. Let's say you're going out on a dive boat to um, you know, somewhere off the coast of Southern California. You're not planning to see a shark, but you're ready with your camera in case you do, right? So if you go out on a normal dive, and let's just say you get really lucky and a juvenile great white goes by, right? You're like, wow. So you have your camera ready and you take the photo. So that goes up into the FieldScope database. And so like iNaturalist, FieldScope is a general citizen science tool. That means it can be used for bees, birds, butterflies, whatever your community, pro your community science projects happen to be. In our case, it's sharks, of course. So it goes into their database and there's, we, we don't use pattern recognition because it's this project we call Sharks of California because it's mainly non seven gills. Since we already have the wild book database for seven gills, we don't need you know, another database for them again. So the field scope database is for most species of shark that might be seen off the coast that are not seven gill. Okay, so you, you have your shark encounter and you upload it to the field scope uh, database. Now, one good thing about the FieldScope database is, while it doesn't use pattern recognition, it has uh, very good tools for uh, geolocation, where you can mark where you were. Now, I should also emphasize here that one minor problem we run into uh, with geolocation and marine life is that GPS devices don't work underwater, right? So the best you can do in a case like that is if you're diving from a boat, you get the G GPS location from your boat, okay? And going by that, and then you upload it into the database. And from there, FieldScope has some really good uh, data analysis tools uh, that you can use to um, communicate the encounter to either a scientist or a non-scientist. So that's the main reason we use it. So what kind of things will see? Well, so you have your you have your, as you mentioned, okay, so we have the small harmless species of shark that most divers are aware of in Southern California, leopard shark and horn shark, and also the rare swell shark. And they're all very small and very harmless and they don't bother anybody. Then you have the larger sharks and we've already mentioned the seven gills. And um, so if you're really lucky, you might see a taupe, but as Barbara mentioned, they're very hard to photograph. But we've also had, especially during the uh, the 2014 
uh, heat wave uh, in the ocean, we had uh, photographers documenting hammerheads. And uh, we've also had, I believe, um, whale sharks were coming up uh, further north than they normally do. And so there's, there's the normal species that you see every day. And then there are the species that were coming up during the, the marine life, uh, the water warming. Uh, we've had sightings of basking sharks. Um, and then some of the other fast swimmers would be like the gray smoothhound shark. Right now I'm looking at the list, which is why I'm looking off screen. Um, the taupe shark, which we talked about, the thresher shark. Uh, and then also, I can't remember, did you mention mako? We've had a couple sightings of makos. And um, angel sharks, uh, you know, so pretty much any type of shark that you might see um, in the Eastern Pacific. Yeah, we've also had documented encounters with uh, great whites in the databases. Wow. Well. Um, juveniles for the most part, yes? Well, you know, you raise a good point. So that's, that, that has to do with a recent phenomenon in the last couple of years where there's a researcher out of uh, Cal State Long Beach named Chris Lowe. Fantastic guy. He's been documenting uh, the increase of great white juveniles off the coast of Southern California for various reasons. He is, um, he's a wild cat. Um, I spoke to him before their drones became um, accessible to everything. One of his, <laughs> one of his uh, projects was he had the lifeguards take his grad students out and they had to um, target, uh, this is not the scientific term, they would use a spear to, uh, put data planters on juvenile great white sharks in the San Monica Bay. And so as grad students, you had to go out and jump spear great white sharks to not to harm them. It wouldn't harm them, but to basically attach these trackers on them. I'm like, so where most people are freaked out about sharks, he was uh, talking college students, you know, and all their imminent wisdom to jump into the water and try and, you know, attach things to them. And now I think he's using mostly drone stuff to get this done, but he does amazing work. The guy's super fascinating. I'm hoping to talk to him at some point. Yes, and I believe uh, just for your interest, Ian, he has released a paper uh, recently, a scientific paper on the um, appearance of uh, great white juveniles off the coast of Southern California. Oh, cool. I'll have um, to look for it. But we have, so to answer your question, I don't think we have documented juveniles in our database because the divers in question were not diving there. They were diving uh, more like in the Catalina area, but we do have documented encounters with adults. And those are the ones they make all the movies about. So. Yeah, and, and listen, uh, there's some really interesting stories about divers running into them in Catalina. My favorite being uh, a group of tech divers who were running rebreathers on the backside trying to do some uh, net removal off a wreck. And they were circled for about 15 minutes by a uh, large 16-foot female. And I'm, I'm, I don't know what that would be like. I imagine if I was there, I would be able to judge the aggression level of the shark. But that is a big animal to be in the water with. Yes. A big animal. Indeed. Yeah. But how exciting, right? Like these are right. really exciting encounters, even if you're not around a 16-footer a 10 or an eight foot shark underwater that sneaks up on you and surprises you is, is quite the experience. The other thing where we make a point of emphasizing, of course, is safety first. Of course. So we always emphasize, never put your safety above getting that great shot of that great shark. 
Um, so safety first, always. We emphasize that. As in any encounter underwater with wild animals, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. Well, that is some amazing stuff. Um, so let me see if I can summarize correctly. So you guys have three different platforms um, and you guys interact with monitoring seven gill sharks, all general shark species. The Yukon, um, the Yukon as an artificial reef and the progress that it's going on and also the tidepools. And all this data is being funneled into a pot that's made accessible to anybody who wants to try and uh, make sense of it any way they can to figure stuff out. And people can participate on a you know simple collection level and make their average Sunday into something that might help further science. Is that a pretty good summary? Absolutely. Excellent. That's pretty awesome. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, I, I didn't realize it was so far reached. Now, if people wanted to find out more, I know you guys have uh, video education stuff, education stuff and video stuff on your website, right? Which is oceansanctuaries.com. Dot org. Dot org. Dot org. Yeah. Because we yeah. are a 501c3 nonprofit. Perfect. So. And if you go to oceansanctuaries.org, uh, we are working on redoing the site, but there's a section called citizen science and the shark projects are listed under there, the iNaturalist projects, the citizen science courses, and then tools as well. So, um, so it may be organized a little bit differently in the future, but uh, we're gonna try to make it pretty clear. And so, because those are on separate platforms, it will take you off of the site onto, you know, onto another platform. Uh, so if people are interested in participating and getting involved, they would start at oceansanctuaries.org. And is that correct? Yeah, they can do that. Yes. Um, they can also uh, reach us on Facebook, um, Ocean Sanctuaries, and uh, you know, ask us there and look for our events because we will mo post our events, um, the, the BioBlitz events and things like that on Facebook. So Facebook is a, is a good place to reach you. How, yeah. uh, how soon are you guys thinking about, uh, or where do you see as far as a timeline, obviously COVID right now, why we're on zoom instead of in person and all that it may have an effect, but what do you think your timeline is before you are working more closely on getting people out to the Yukon for this purpose of recording data? Well, we actually are tentatively, uh, so water horse charters is already back in the water. So they're observing all the appropriate COVID precautions. And so we're hoping to have divers in the water and encouraging other divers to participate uh, within a month or two, uh, March, April. And uh, so- March, April, 2021. Yeah, we always observe COVID precautions. So given that, I did wanna mention that when it comes to Facebook, we have a, what I'll call a peripheral group because it's not directly linked to ocean sanctuaries, but I set up, in fact, the reason it's not directly linked is because I set up the group before ocean sanctuaries even existed. So it's called Citizen Scientists of the Ocean. And uh, we have almost 12,000 members now. So it's, it's an extensive site and it's for people generally interested in the ocean and generally interested in marine citizen science. And people are welcome to go there as well. And so that's uh, on Facebook as well. In addition, uh, we do 
like I said before, we do um, a lot of our tide pool snapshots uh, during the Cal, uh, the snapshot Cal Coast from California Academy, which is usually in the month of June, a two week period. They may extend it. Um, last year, they did it June 1st through November 16th because of COVID. Uh, so I don't know what 2021 dates are gonna be. And so that's the near term. Then later in the year, um, November, December, January, February, depending on which months uh, the King Tide projects uh, do their data collection, we run our uh, related King Tide tide pool projects at the same time. I mean, and with COVID right now, like being able to get outside and do something and, uh, you know, in the open air is the safest you can be. This is a mm -hmm. great opportunity to have an excuse to get out and go to the ocean and spend time with people, socially distanced, of course, and, and you know, engage and have a good time. Exactly. Engage that curiosity. That's what I love about all this. Exactly. Talking about all of these opportunities, we also are always looking for interns. And again, these oh, yeah. are volunteer positions, right? So we have, you know, we have a lot of need, right? And some of that need is actually just like um, on that, on iNaturalist, we need people to help go curate the data. Um, we also, if we do get to the point where we are doing holding events, we need people to help with that. Uh, we're looking for interns uh, who want to look at the data mm -hmm. and how they may be able to use the data. Uh, just there's a lot of opportunities and we can be reached uh, via email at we.care at oceansanctuaries.org. So, um, and again, if, you know, Facebook um, is a really great place to, to ping us. Um, you can send instant messages uh, to us there as well. Although sometimes we don't see them because Facebook doesn't make it so obvious when somebody <laughs> sends a message. <laughs> They've changed a lot of stuff recently and yeah. um, it's not all for the better in my opinion, but uh, who am I? I'm just a lowly user. Um, so great. So you guys, beyond just being a, a citizen science, you guys have opportunities for people who are uh, have a little bit of training or want a little bit of training and want to help contribute to the cause. That's fantastic. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I mean, of course, and then there's things and people who maybe want to even uh, do internships related to running nonprofits, right, and doing things like that. So we have lots of lots of need, lots of opportunity. Knowing how to set up and run a nonprofit and being able to work with a nonprofit to get that experience is something that is wholly uh, like underrated. If you want to do anything in the science, understanding um, what it takes to keep an organization running like that is such a valuable, valuable skill. So much of science work is done through like grant writing and organizational and making connections with people. Like it's, it's, it's not what people, it's not just like sitting in a lab all day. There's a lot of administrative stuff that goes along with it these days. It's, but it would be a great opportunity. Yeah. And definitely, I mean, even like marketing and things like that, it's mm -hmm. interesting because we've had, um, I believe now three different uh, postdocs or um, either graduate students or postdocs uh, doing stuff. And as a matter of fact, uh, Lizzie Mays on our board, she came to us interested in doing an internship for the related to her thesis. And now she's on the board and she's really driving the entire data analysis for the Yukon Marine Life Survey. 
So, you know, we have a graduate student who's going to do a thesis, you know, project. I mean, she's still in the proposal stages, so it hasn't been approved. Um, but that's definitely, you know, there, there's lots of opportunities um, for people at all different levels and stages and, you know, what they want to contribute. Which I am tickled to hear that somebody is focusing on the Yukon as, as, a, as a thesis because um, I think there's I think there needs to be more research done on the impact of, of artificial reefs and whether because they're I don't think people really know if uh, they're attracting if they're creating habitat, which is what I see and think, or if they're just pulling away from other nearby habitat. Um, and it would be nice to see if we can get some solid data of the pros and cons. Because there is a whole group of people who uh, see it as sees artificial reefs as litter on the seafloor, um, you know, us just dumping garbage, and I I can't believe that anybody who's ever dove on the Yukon uh, would see that as a piece of garbage in the ocean. It is a structure that has created a platform for so much life. Um, and the places that I have dove where I see this is there's a lot of unintended wrecks in the Santa Monica Bay up near Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. um, there is the oil mm -hmm. platforms, which um, are very intentional, but have the unintended consequences of creating a, a entire ecosystem beneath the water, which is absolutely amazing. And then you have the Yukon, which again is intentional and has created this beautiful underwater experience with so much life. And I don't think we have the science to support what most people into it when they go to these places, which is that they're a really great system, a really great place um, for creating habitat. And that's why baseline studies are needed to support the science. It's certainly the, the topic of artificial reefs is not without its controversy. I know no. that when the Yukon went down, there was, you know, a lot of discussion and going in both directions. So that's all the more reason, uh, the more science, the better, the more baseline studies, the better. So that people are able to make informed decisions. And, and, and that's, that's the thing too, is like, um, you know, I think when you say informed decision, right, that's not picking a side based on an idea that is not based in reality. And I think we have a lot of that right now. And that's why we need that science. And that's why I think it's great um, because, you know, maybe we find out that they are terrible and they're not good. And then we have to make a choice. Do we do, do we really want to invest in something like this? But if we find out they're good and they're beneficial, that's a whole nother discussion. And, and like anything, I'm sure it's probably like a little bit of both um, to some extent. And then you have to, you know, get off the scale and weigh out what's, what do you want for the surrounding environment in the community, right? Right. So, um, yeah. it is, Definitely. that is fantastic. Um, I'm really glad to hear that somebody's putting in, you know, already trying to utilize your guys's information that you're gathering and, and make something of it. That's great. Um, I would like to put out one other thing that, um, kind of gets overlooked as possible possibilities. Um, so obviously we have website, we have a website and we have need, for uh, interns for curating data for the website and maintaining that. But we also have this whole online learning platform. We are looking for people who want to write content related to citizen science at a level that um, individual, you know, even going down to kids. I mean, 
the whole range from adults who already have some, you know, science uh, training because Mike and I were trained as uh, underwater uh, scientists um, all the way down to kids, right? And creating that content or um, just really supporting that content. So we have lots of opportunities. So are you, pretty much. Are you saying you're you're working on developing um, like a, like a method or a way to engage like young people in practicing? Uh, oh, we definitely want to get there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We absolutely want to get there. Stuff that could to be... get even into schools to to have events for schools, but that's definitely not happening this year. The Tide Pool Project is actually taking, it's growing very slowly, but that's okay, right? Um, but we're trying to build a good foundation and then from the foundation, then to try to really engage the community, right? And not just in Cal, not just in San Diego. I mean, Tide Pool's all over, all over the state of California and then eventually potentially elsewhere as well. Fantastic. So we are not restricted to uh, California. As a matter of fact, we have for our seven gills, we have a uh, whole uh, sister site set of data from South Africa. Okay. And we're looking at ways of getting data from Australia, from uh, fishermen because of uh, it's a long story. We can maybe do another one completely on seven gills at some point. There's a lot of interesting things about seven gills and um, that, we could talk about. Oh, wow. Fantastic. And this is all through Wildbook. You guys have linked internationally through that platform or is that's this correct? Other? Okay. How great. See, this is the kind of stuff that people want to be involved in. And I'm so glad that I can, um, you know, talk to you guys and hopefully, uh, let people know that they have this as an opportunity now. And you guys putting together this type of, um, organization, that allows people to engage. You guys are doing the hard work of setting it up and people can just walk in and participate and get to do the fun part. That is absolutely fantastic. I love it. That's the idea. Yep. Have fun. <laughs> right? At the end of the day, that that's- Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, if you're not having fun, then go do something else. We, are, we always like right? to say, if you're not having fun, you're doing something wrong. Exactly. Well, guys, I think that's going to cut it off for us. Uh, that was fantastic. Again, um, I'd just like to reiterate, uh, if people are interested in finding out more about you guys, go to oceansanctuaries.org. And um, that is where you can access all the stuff that we've talked about today. Uh, Mike and Barbara, it was fantastic talking to you guys. Really well, thank, appreciate it. Oh, thank, thank you, Ian. And uh, we really appreciate uh, you doing this interview. 